Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Benjamin Stoff. Dr. Stoff is an Associate Professor of Dermatology, Pathology, and Laboratory Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine, and additionally, a co-author of the recent joint American Academy of Dermatology and National Psoriasis Foundation Guidelines, published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Dr. Stoff, welcome. Dr. Council, thank you very much for having me. So the guidelines that we're going to discuss today specifically address the management and treatment of psoriasis with phototherapy. And I understand that there are some other psoriasis guidelines that have been released, and I know that there's some that we're expecting to come down the pipeline. Can you inform our listeners as to what's already been released and what additional ones are coming? Yes, we've had a couple of guidelines published already. There was a lot of interest in getting a new guidelines out about biologic therapy, for example. So that was the first guidelines that was published in this iteration. There have been a lot of developments in the biologic armamentarium since the last iteration. So that was first. Second was a new section, which was really exciting and interesting on awareness of comorbidities associated with psoriasis, a kind of emerging um, science uh, surrounding comorbidities. And that was, that was the next guideline. Phototherapy will follow. And then in the pipeline will be traditional systemic therapies for psoriasis, a guideline on topical therapies for psoriasis, and then another new guideline, which is partly new in content and also new in format, which is pediatric psoriasis, will all be condensed into a single guideline. So rather than being a part of individual guidelines as it was in the last iteration, pediatric psoriasis will all appear in a single guideline this time around. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. Could you briefly tell us yes. the process of how these guidelines were developed? Yes, it's a very elaborate process and actually fairly prescribed process. I think first and foremost, uh, a thank you should go to the AAD staff who worked really tirelessly throughout all of the guideline development, whether it be a really massive research endeavor, which is a part of all the guidelines. There is also uh, the administration of the guidelines process, coordination, they very politely nagged members of the work group as well, um, and without them, there would just simply be no guidelines for psoriasis. Also, of course, the co-chairs of the work group, Drs. Alan Mentor and Craig Elements, were wonderful leaders and really critical to the really massive undertaking that this was. Um, in order to, to label something as a clinical practice guideline, a kind of pathway has to be followed, and this is in accordance with the Institute of Medicine's standards for clinical practice guideline development. These include things like transparency and management of conflict of interest. There are specifications about group composition of the work group, um, ways in which the systematic review of the literature should take place, developing the recommendations and rating them, external review, publication, and updating. So essentially, the IOM puts out four phases that they recommend for guideline development. The first is just the formation of the working group and the development of really relevant clinical questions, and these mostly come from 
the work group chairs. There is then a really large systematic review of the literature, which is done by AAD staff and is a really massive undertaking, followed by some initial recommendations that are typically made by the section leads. And this was me and Dr. Henry Lim and Henry Ford um, for the phototherapy section. In phase two, the work group meets to scrutinize the recommendations that are made by the section leads and also come up with strengths of recommendation by consensus for each of the recommendation statements. The third phase is drafting of the guideline itself, which is done by medical writers. And then a fourth phase involves a really comprehensive review of the guideline itself. So this comes from an open member comment phase, a kind of broader review by the clinical guideline committee at AAD, also by the board of directors at AAD and the National Psoriasis Foundation, and then the conventional sort of peer review process through Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology before publication. Oh, thank you very much for that transparency. Also, could you tell sure. us why are guidelines so important? Yeah, I think they are really important, and there's an increasing trend toward developing them in many fields across medicine. I think it, it really is intended to represent a coordinated effort to provide guidance to practitioners uh, based upon a really thorough systematic review of the literature. I really think in its most fundamental level, it is intending to answer the question, does something work? for a given disease. That's really what it's trying to answer. I think the guidelines committee is very careful about not claiming that it establishes standards of care, but I think it does really form the foundation about what we should and should not offer to patients for psoriasis and other diseases in dermatology. Sure. And I think it's, it's just really nice to have that service, to have someone like the Academy come out. And certainly we all don't have time as an individual to survey all of the medical literature and do all of the, the hours and hours of hard work that developing these guidelines takes. It's nice to have that done and to kind of say, well, this is what everyone can use to sort of guide treatment. It's really, really helpful. Right. Absolutely. It's intended to be very practical. And I think it, it has the advantage of not only the really massive literature review, but also this sort of like interpretation from experts in the field. So it's sort of taking what is known about psoriasis and treatments for psoriasis, for example, and then sort of filtering it through people who have a lot of expertise in the disease and, and thinking about, you know, particular circumstances a practitioner would encounter in the field. Yes, thank you. Returning to the topic of discussion today, the yeah. management of treatment psoriasis with phototherapy, I understand that the guidelines are going to address a range of modalities, including both broad and narrowband UVB UVA in conjunction with photosensitizers, or formerly known as PUVA, targeted UVB treatments like the eczema laser, and several new applications, things like pulse dye laser, intense pulse light, and light-emitting electrodes. Is all of this correct? Yes, that's basically correct. And the, the focus, as I mentioned earlier, is on treatment of adults in this guideline. Um, the guidelines for use of phototherapy in pediatrics will appear in the pediatric-specific guideline. There are a couple of other modalities that are touched upon in the guideline, Geckerman therapy, Grensray, photodynamic therapy, and a few others. And I think you could just see how challenging it is just to define the scope of a guideline. This is something that we really rely on the chairs to help us with, but you know, what would be included and what isn't is actually one of the challenges on the front end. Sure. Let's think about a patient who might benefit from phototherapy. Um, you also mentioned another guideline talked about lots of the comorbidities that come with psoriasis. Many patients right. also have, for example, psoriatic arthritis. Does having psoriatic arthritis sort of indicate that you need systemic treatment as opposed to phototherapy? Do you just have to have skin disease in order to be a candidate? 
is there a certain body surface area that you would have to have to right. justify a modality? Tell me who's a good candidate for phototherapy. Yeah, this is a key question. I think in general, phototherapy would be considered for patients who would have moderate to severe psoriasis. And this typically is defined by body surface area affected. So three to 5% or greater. There, I think in practical terms, is a consideration of phototherapy often in circumstances in which a patient may be adverse to systemic medications of some sort or for whom a systemic medication may be contraindicated, usually because of the effects on the immune system. I think another circumstance in which phototherapy may be considered is for patients for whom topical therapies are not sufficient. And oftentimes, this might be a patient with more limited disease in which targeted phototherapy might be utilized. Also, of course, patients who have significant functional or emotional impairment from disease might be candidates for phototherapy. I think in the case of comorbidities, particularly psoriatic arthritis, phototherapy would not be used as monotherapy in this context. I think there's some interesting data in the guidelines about combination phototherapy with some newer agents that might target or be more appropriate for patients with particular comorbidities like psoriatic arthritis. One of the most commonly used forms of phototherapy is narrowband UVB. What exactly is this treatment and who would be a good candidate for this, for example? Yeah, narrowband UVB, I think, is the most commonly used form of phototherapy for psoriasis and probably just in general. It refers to light emitted in the UVB spectrum, of course, but only over a very small range, so typically in the 311 to 313 nanometer range. There's very high-quality evidence, relatively speaking, supporting its use for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. It also has a fair amount of evidence supporting its use for guttate psoriasis. It's something that practitioners often think about in pregnant patients with plaque or guttate psoriasis, although, of course, there's less evidence in this population. Um, And also um, a need to supplement with folate um, in populations and pregnant patients or people who may become pregnant because of um, some evidence showing degradation of folate as as a result of exposure to UVB light. There are a few other um, highlights associated with UVB in the guidelines, including use of a home unit. So this is something that's a nice option for patients who a dermatologist would feel would be capable of administering narrowband UVB at home. Also some data supporting combinations with other therapies, topical therapies, of course, oral retinoids, and this combination has been around for a long time, but some new studies, which are small, um, suggesting combination with drugs like apremolast and some of the biologics, which is also promising. And you touched on one of the risks, which was the folate degradation. Are there other more serious risks associated with narrowband UVB treatment? Yeah, I think the, the main risks we think about are typically in the acute phase. So these would be things like erythema and blistering, essentially burning, which occurs in about 5 to 10% of patients. There's also a sort of theoretical risk of recrudescence of HSV infection and also potential for acute ocular toxicity. This is part of the reason that often um, an intake form for phototherapy will, will query about history of HSV and also the standard practice to protect the eyes during a phototherapy session. In terms of chronic risks, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, long-term data do not seem to show an increased risk of skin cancer in patients who've been treated with narrowband for a long period of time. There is also some concern about um, the development of cataracts. This has also not borne out um, over long-term studies. Well, that's very reassuring. Yes. I know that it's 
difficult to sort of compare cost of yeah. different modalities. Yeah. But in speaking in very general terms, could you tell us how does narrowband compare to other modalities that you might consider for someone with extensive psoriasis? This is a really key question, Lauren. I think this is something that often drives treatment choices as much as anything these days because there's such a difference in costs of the various therapies that are available now. You're also right that it's challenging to determine cost precisely. There are a lot of variables to consider, health insurance plan coverage, access. There are, of course, sort of indirect costs associated with, for example, a patient having to commute to and from an office, missing work, and so forth. Uh, But I think, generally speaking, narrowband UVB compares relatively well to some of the other systemic therapies that are out there for psoriasis. There was an interesting study out of UConn a few years ago, which sought to estimate the aggregate cost per patient to to achieve a 75% improvement in PASI score. So this is the standard metric used to determine psoriasis severity, predominantly in clinical trials. And narrowband UVB did pretty well. It was significantly less costly than all of the biologics by like an order of magnitude, um, but also less expensive than, than acetretin and PUVA, another form of phototherapy. Oh. It was more expensive, I think, not surprisingly, than methotrexate um, and also cyclosporine. So it's somewhere in between, but I think actually reasonable option in terms of aggregate cost compared to some of the newer biologics. Very interesting. Yeah. Another modality covered in the guidelines was broadband. UVB, and you mentioned narrowband at very specific wavelengths. When would you consider using broadband treatment? I think broadband UVB is sort of falling out of favor. It's an older form of phototherapy in which the wavelengths emitted by the light source cover a larger range of the UVB spectrum. So this is typically 270 to 390 approximately. Um, Part of the reason it's less favorable is generally less effective than narrowband UVB or PUVA for plaque psoriasis, according to fairly large studies comparing the modalities. The acute risks of broadband UVB are very similar to narrowband, so mostly burning. It's the longer-term risk that I think also limited to use, so there is, there is evidence suggesting high exposure to broadband UVB, so this would be typically like 300 treatments or more, um, may confer risk for the development of skin cancer. It's particularly true in the genital area, um, and this has led to the standard practice of genital shielding for really all phototherapy administration. So I think the role for broadband would probably be in a situation in which narrowband just isn't available. And let's say that you had a broadband um, device in your office. Is this something that you simply change a bulb and now you have a narrowband, or is it the entire device has to be replaced? I think there's a lot of variability in that. Most of the broadband devices are quite old in my experience. So generally speaking, I think we would advocate for um, just getting a new unit, although some of the newer units have the ability to replace broadband bulbs with narrowband bulbs. So I think it depends a bit on your unit, but I think if you're using one that was just broadband only, it's probably from a long time ago, so it may warrant um, replacing the whole unit. Sure. And you touched on this a little bit earlier. You said some patients who have maybe very limited skin disease would just need very targeted therapy. What are some of the targeted options that are available today? Yeah, I think targeted UVB phototherapy is a great option for patients. It's something that's increasingly utilized according to Medicare data and predominantly considered in patients with plaque psoriasis, usually those covering less than 10% of the body surface area, so those would be considered mild or moderate disease. 
That said, I think it can also be used for areas that are stubborn in patients who have widespread disease. It's also utilized often for palmo plantar disease, which can be very stubborn, and scalp disease, which is also very difficult to control topically. Some of the options available include eczema laser and eczema light, which emit 308 nanometer wavelengths. There's also just targeted narrowband UVB units, which emit that same range of, of 311 to 313 nanometers. In general, treatment with the targeted phototherapy in the UVB range is superior when it's administered a couple times a week as opposed to once every few weeks or once a month. Also, in general, the eczema laser seems to be the most effective, followed by the eczema light source and then the, the targeted narrowband UVB. So I think great options for limited disease or stubborn disease or particular sites affected like the scalp and hands and feet. Thank you. And going back to some of sure. the different options that we have for patients, you mentioned that broadband light has kind of fallen out of wayside. Another thing that I have yeah. not heard as much about, but historically, right. PUVA used to be used for management of psoriasis. How right. does PUVA fit into the recommendations today? Is it still used for psoriasis? Are there certain circumstances where it would be appropriate? How do we use it? Uh, it's a great question. And I think in general, there is declining use of PUVA for psoriasis, and this is supported by Medicare data showing decreased use over the past 15 years or so. And I think they, the guidelines really acknowledge this trend. In fact, at the, at the AAD annual meeting this year, the phototherapy forum posed the question, should we still use PUVA for psoriasis at all? And it was an interesting philosophical question. I think the main limitation with PUVA has to do with potential adverse effects and primarily skin cancer. And, and this is predominantly experienced by patients of fair skin types, so Fitzpatrick 1 or 2. There are very high quality and long-term data showing an increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma in patients treated with high-dose oral PUVA. So these would be several hundred treatments. There's also an increased risk, although much more modest, for basal cell carcinoma there's some controversy around melanoma risk. So in the American cohort of patients exposed to PUVA, there was an increased risk of melanoma. However, in European cohorts, there appears not to be. And this is an interesting um, discrepancy, and no one is quite sure why this has occurred. Uh, there's some speculation that um, the European population may have darker skin types or may more commonly use topical or bath PUVA as opposed to oral PUVA. But the bottom line is we are seeing risk among um, U.S. populations uh, for melanoma, and that's obviously a major limitation. There's also a, a greater risk of acute erythema and blistering, obviously nausea associated with the sorolins. There's long-term pigmentation considerations um, that are, of course, greater with PUVA than narrowband UVB. I think also just availability of PUVA units is on the decline, and there's some, been some variability in the availability and cost of the sorolins, so it's difficult for patients to get. I think it's also important to remember, though, PUVA really is superior to UVB phototherapy, um, both in terms of reduction in body surface area affected, the sort of rate of reduction of body surface area affected, and also the durability of response after discontinuation of the therapy. So I think one way that I think about the role of PUVA now is much narrower than it once was, would be for short-term use. So the skin cancer risk appears not to be nearly as significant in patients who are treated for, say, less than 150 treatments. Perhaps patients of darker skin types, so maybe Fitzpatrick 3 or greater, you know, obviously those who want to avoid systemic immunomodulatory therapy and have access to the drug in the unit, those are 
of course, uh, essential to think about PUVA as an option. Sure. Well, thank you. When looking sure. through the guidelines, one thing that I had never heard of um, was the term climatotherapy. It's not necessarily a new concept, but certainly it may be a recently coined word. Can you tell our listeners right. a little bit about this concept? Yes, I think new label, old idea. Um, Climatotherapy involves psoriasis patients actually physically going, in some cases even moving, to places um, which have climates that would be favorable for the disease for one reason or another. And the classic location is the Dead Sea, although there are others. Um, In these locations, there are treatment centers in which patients are given a kind of comprehensive program, which typically involves some scheduled exposure to natural UV, so natural sun, and then also exposure to the water source, uh, in the case of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea itself, and then, but also uh, sort of group counseling and support, physical activities, et cetera. And there are some data, although of somewhat limited quality, um, showing improvement in objective measures of disease like PASI scores or quality of life metrics. Um, I think the trouble here is that the effect seems to be transient. In other words, once the patient leaves this climate, um, the benefit seems to wane. And then, of course, there's also really substantial costs associated with travel to the site and accommodations and so forth. I think ultimately the work group saw promise in this modality, but just felt there was not sufficient evidence to recommend it at this point. Sure. Yeah. Would you very briefly touch on some of the emerging therapies that are mentioned in the guidelines that utilize like lasers and novel light sources sure. and maybe give some examples and let us know how these technologies are going to be used in our psoriasis patients. Yeah, I think one thing that maybe isn't necessarily a new light source, but maybe an old light source used in a new way is pulse dye laser. So PDL, we all know about as a vascular laser there are some emerging data suggesting that it would benefit the treatment of nail disease. So this is obviously notoriously stubborn and challenging to treat. Um, And there have been some small trials published relatively recently in which affected nails would be treated, say, monthly with PDL for a few months, three to six months typically, and seem to be associated with improvement in the validated outcome measures for psoriasis nails, NAPSI, for example. It seems to be the case that onycholysis and subungual hyperkeratosis are relatively more responsive to PDL, but that pitting less so. Um, adverse effects in the trials um, would be things we'd expect, so some discomfort at the time of the treatment and, so, and then purpura um, as well. But I think something promising, and it was something that the guidelines group considered um, as a recommended treatment for nail disease. Well, that's very interesting. Another thing that I think is important to consider, especially when we have a lot of options, there are a lot of different types of treatments that we can offer for our psoriasis patients, is the concept Mm -hmm. of shared decision-making or more of a partnership between the patient and a physician to tailor the care towards that specific person. How does patient preference come into play when we do have all of these options? I think it's hugely important. And I think the guidelines group acknowledge the importance of this, not just symbolically, but actually having patient representatives as part of the work group. Uh, And I think their insight was really valuable and I think sort of tethered us to real-world considerations that patients would have. Um, There are a number of relevant considerations where a patient may value one thing or another, and that would dictate the choice of therapy, even just within the spectrum of phototherapy. For example, 
you know, the proximity of the unit to where the patient lives is often a major constraint. You know, is it close? Is the patient close to the office? Is the patient able to acquire a home unit and capable of manipulating it to the appropriate settings? What about the frequency of dosing? You know, there is often a big difference from a practical perspective between, say, three times per week dosing and once or twice per week dosing. Obviously, insurance coverage is a major issue here perhaps even in just in the form of co-payments for individual light treatments at an office. Obviously, comorbidities weigh in, as we discussed earlier, and then just simply the rates of improvement because there's some variability there as well. So a lot of things for patients to consider, a lot of ways in which patient preferences would help guide therapeutic decisions. Thank you. You have certainly yeah. done a fantastic job kind of summarizing the guidelines. We certainly imp- Appreciate your introduction to our listeners. Do you have any final thoughts with which you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the first thing would just be, you know, we are in the era of biologics, but we should not forget about phototherapy for psoriasis. It's been around a long time. I think its role is probably changing and maybe slightly narrower than it has been in the past with so many systemic options now available. But there are still a lot of patients who would benefit from phototherapy. Remember, those who, again, would be averse to systemic therapy for one reason or another or for whom systemic therapy may be contraindicated. We're seeing, again, some promising and interesting data about new light sources, particularly targeted light sources. And I think this is accounting for the trend of increased use of phototherapy for psoriasis in general. Also, I think we're going to see a new role for phototherapy as a form of combination therapy. So I think we'll increasingly see phototherapy almost used as an adjunct to other therapies in some patients who would benefit from it and perhaps uh, another therapeutic intervention for a patient with psoriatic arthritis, for example, as we discussed before. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks for doing the interview. Okay. Thanks again.